Uh, she's going to kill me when she hears this. Howdy. You're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Alfstrom. This week, we continue our look at many of the terrible tornadoes which have struck Texas throughout history. But first, what's your favorite movie featuring a tornado, and preferably in Texas? My favorite movie featuring a tornado is Wizard of Oz, but that's not set in Texas. Uh, So I'm going to go with Places in the Heart, which starred Sally Field and John Malkovich. This is a great movie, Oscar-winning movie uh, for Sally Field, and there's a tornado right in the middle of it. Malkovich! Malkovich, I'm going to pick Tornado with an exclamation point. Uh, This was a made-for-TV movie that was actually a Twister knockoff. Um, I remember commercials for this years years ago. Uh, But it stars Bruce Campbell, uh, Shannon Sturgis, and Ernie Hudson. Um, And it was filmed primarily in Austin, so that's pretty cool. Uh, I don't recall if it's actually set in Texas, but who cares? It was made here. Um, I do particularly like the uh, the plot description on IMDb, though. It says, an accountant sent to produce an evaluation of a tornado research project and the scientist running the project pursue tornadoes and each other. I bet Bruce plays the accountant. That would be a, a smart guess. It, and I'm not <laughs> sure whether uh, Shannon Sturgis or Ernie Hudson is uh, who he's pursuing, though. So okay. <laughs> you'll have to uh, watch the movie, have to watch the movie and figure that out. National treasure. He is a national treasure. <laughs> he is a national treasure. <laughs> okay, look, I think you pretty much exhausted the uh, the funnel of tornado movies. Uh, so, uh, but bop, I am going to throw bop. out two tornado movies that we have to mention. The first would be 1976, The Human Tornado, starring Rudy Ray Moore as Dolomite. We are taking you and your car to sunny California. Can you dig it? Now the problem is uh, there's a lot of other great quotes from that, but I can't I can't do those. Um, it's mature. The other <laughs> great film, the other great film that just came out last year. And if you listen to other podcasts and you like movies, go check out How Did This Get Made because they did an amazing episode on a little weather film called Geostorm. It just feels good to shout it. Like just you take off your headphones, walk outside, and just scream Geostorm in the air. You'll feel better all day. It's a terrible movie. Terrible, terrible movie. Well, I, I can't believe with fifty with fifty Sharknado movies, not a single one of them is set in Texas. Not yet. But Sharknado, uh, Texas, Bowie style. I'm telling you, you know what? Like we could get the History <laughs> Channel together with, uh, you know, the Sci Fi Network, and they call their good friends over here, come and take it, and we will write hey, you a script. Bruce Campbell could animate. Sam Houston statue to defend the coast against Sharknado. Now, there's an idea. Takes the best parts of Ghostbusters 2 <laughs> in the Sharknado <laughs> franchise and mashes them together. <laughs> Call us sci-fi. Exactly. 17 years to the day after a massively powerful F5 tornado struck the central Texas city of Waco, another small college town, this one the city of Lubbock, was rocked by another F5 tornado which ripped through the heart of the city. Lubbock is located in the southern portion of the Panhandle, north of Midland, about halfway to Amarillo. It's a farming and ranching community that was the home of what had been up until the year before the Texas Technological County. Uh, 
but at this point, it was now known as Texas Tech University, a major university in the state. At 10 a.m. on May 11, 1970, the Weather Service issued an outlook that stated that isolated thunderstorms were possible in the high plains. Later in the afternoon, they amended the alert to state that some of the storms may become severe. It was a warm, dry afternoon, and people weren't expecting any bad weather. The semester just ended, so many students had either returned home or were planning to do so soon. That evening, after 6 p.m., the first thunderstorm started to appear in Amarillo, and quickly the storms started spreading south, growing stronger. At 7.45, the National Weather Service issued a severe thunderstorm warning for Lubbock, Crosby, and Floyd counties. Shortly afterward, the weather bureaus of the local television and radio stations were getting reports of rapidly deteriorating conditions on the south side of the city, where residents saw lightning, high winds, and golf ball-sized hail. At 8.10, an off-duty Lubbock police officer spotted a funnel cloud on the east side of the city as the size of hail increased to grapefruit. Soon after, local radar indicated a hook echo and a tornado warning was issued for Lubbock and Crosby counties. The first tornado touched down seven miles south of Lubbock Municipal Airport, but there was little significant damage to the sparsely settled area. The hail was a more pressing concern, with baseball to grapefruit-sized hail now falling throughout the city. At about 9.35, a second tornado touched down near the campus of Texas Tech University. It snapped light poles at the university's Jones Stadium and quickly gained intensity as it began to move northeast towards the downtown. The tornado grew to be nearly two miles wide and was carving a path of destruction right through the heart of the city. The devastating twister tore through several densely populated residential areas, including off-campus university housing, before hitting downtown. The tornado struck the large First National Bank building and the brand new Great Plains Life building directly before the tornado moved north toward the airport, and winds were measured at 90 miles an hour. In 946, Power was lost at the Lubbock Civil Defense Headquarters, and three minutes later, the local weather bureau lost power and his personnel took shelter from the tornado, which was now bearing down on the area and passed over them at 10.03 p.m. The tornado continued north-northeast out of the city towards the communities of Abernathy and New Deal, where local authorities were setting off tornado sirens thanks to the alerts they got from Lubbock by two-way radio and by watching the television reports. The tornado finally dissipated about 10.10 p.m. near the community of Petersburg, 45 minutes after it began. The terrible tornado was devastating and affected a 25-square-mile area of the city, which was roughly a quarter of Lubbock. For all of its power, the storm's final death toll was only 26, thanks in part to the timely warnings provided by the Lubbock Weather Bureau and by local media. The storm injured another 500 people. Many of the victims were found in their homes where they'd been struck by flying debris or were trapped in structural collapse. One boy lost his life when he was sucked out of a car he was riding in, and an entire family of five died when their house was lifted from its foundation, hurled over 200 yards, and slammed into a field. The hardest hit were the inner-city commercial and residential areas. The light industrial area south of the city's highway loop and the residential area north of the city around the municipal airport. 430 homes were destroyed and over 8,000 suffered some kind of damage. Some of the homes were completely swept away. Another 600 apartments near the university were destroyed and 549 damaged, and 100 mobile homes, which were now becoming increasingly common in the United States, were severely damaged or destroyed. Entire neighborhoods in the city were almost completely leveled. In the downtown area, over 250 businesses were severely damaged or destroyed, including 20 city and county offices. 
Every motel along 4th Street and Avenue Q north of 10th Street, the major artery through the city, was damaged or destroyed, along with their neighboring businesses. Numerous banks and warehouses were severely damaged, and one nightclub lost its entire top floor. Eight elementary schools were damaged, as well as Lubbock and Estacado High Schools. The latter lost a large portion of the roof over the gym. The damage was especially severe in the industrial areas of North Lubbock. The thick steel covers of a grain storage complex were peeled back from the tops of silos like soup cans. A 41-foot-long 13-ton metal fertilizer tank was thrown nearly a mile through the air. There were large oil tanks hurled 300 yards away, and a railroad car was found rolled for 50 yards. The 271-foot-tall Great Plains Life Building was left with a visible twist in its superstructure, which caused many people to fear it was in danger of collapsing. The radio towers on the roof were twisted or broken off, the interior plaster on the walls was cracked, and most of the building's windows were broken. The steel frame on the south side was permanently twisted by the force of the wind, and three of the four elevators were damaged because their shafts were twisted as well. The severity of the damage led to calls to demolish the building, but the owners chose to repair it instead, a process that took five years. Today, there remains a visible twist to the building, and only the bottom nine floors are allowed to be occupied. It's the second tallest building in the United States to have survived an F5 tornado, the tallest being the Alico building in Waco, which survived the 1953 tornado there. Besides the damage to buildings, over 10,000 vehicles were damaged or destroyed throughout Lubbock. At the municipal airport, 100 private aircraft and 19 military planes were destroyed. Many utilities were damaged or destroyed, and 220 light poles were toppled, leaving the city without power for several days. The Southwestern Bell Company reported that 25,000 telephones were knocked out of service and 600 long-distance lines were destroyed. Many trees were damaged or de- many trees were damaged or completely wiped out, including the city's aged Chinese elm trees. McKenzie State Park, Pioneer Park, Guadalupe Park, and the Texas Tech campus lost almost all of their trees. Damage estimates total $250 million, which today would be around $820 million, making it the ninth costliest tornado in American history. But there was good that came out of the storm. The Lubbock tornado served as a model for the Fujita scale, which was developed a year later. The local weather bureau and local media also showed exemplary skill and capability in their responses to the storm. Two local radio broadcasters, Bud Andrews and Ernesto Barton, were given presidential citations from then-U.S. President Richard M. Nixon for their coverage of the disaster. 1979 Red River Outbreak Not quite nine years later, another massive storm system slammed into North Texas in the Red River Valley, and while it wasn't quite as powerful as the Lubbock storm, it produced a storm that was just as big and nearly as deadly. The 1979 Red River Valley Tornado Outbreak occurred on April 10, 1979, and is commonly referred to as Terrible Tuesday by the people who suffered through it. On the afternoon of April 10th, a low-pressure system entered the area southwest of the city of Wichita Falls, near the Oklahoma border and northwest of Fort Worth. It spun up three supercell thunderstorms in the early afternoon, which stretched across the river valley from Texas to Oklahoma. These cells moved eastward towards State Highway 287 and began forming tornadoes. The first tornado formed near the tiny farming town of Crowell around 3.05 p.m. Around 35 minutes later, another tornado formed, which ripped through the nearby town of Vernon and killed 11 people. 
Around the same time, the supercell also spawned a tornado that killed three people in Lawton, Oklahoma, which was 75 miles away. The second supercell spawned a tornado that moved through 64 miles of farmland northeast of Vernon. The third supercell was the one that formed the Seymour and Wichita Falls tornadoes as part of a three-member tornado family. The first one formed near Seymour, southwest of Wichita Falls, around 453. The storm spawned a second one in Archer City at the edge of Wichita Falls and moved through the south and east sides of Wichita Falls around 6 p.m. The third member of the family formed near Warica, Oklahoma, just over the border, northeast of the city at around 8 p.m. The Wichita Falls tornado moved northeast from Archer County and damaged a few rural homes and high-voltage towers. It rapidly intensified as it entered the city near Memorial Stadium on Southwest Parkway, which is located to the west of Wichita Falls. It damaged both the stadium and the nearby high school severely. Golf ball-sized hail preceded the storm about 15 minutes before it, and there was a still calm where the winds died down right before the tornado passed through. The wedge tornado that formed at its peak was approximately a mile and a half wide, a size supported by the clear and terrifying pictures of this monster roaring through the city. It cut a two-and-a-half-mile swath of destruction through the south side of town, leveling everything in its path. An apartment complex at the edge of the city was among the first destroyed, where several lives were lost. It also destroyed another apartment complex, houses, businesses, and the recently built Sykes Center Mall had its entire roof ripped off and most of the inside stores wrecked. Neighborhoods all along Southwest Parkway were leveled and nothing but debris and destruction remained. As the massive wedge moved out of Wichita Falls into neighboring Clay County, the tornado changed its appearance to display a multiple vortex structure with up to five separate vortices visible within the storm. It inflicted additional damage south of the towns of Dean and Byers, but no more fatalities occurred. The residents by this point had warning and the population wasn't so dense. It crossed into Oklahoma where there was some additional damage before it dissipated not even an hour after touching down. At the end of the day, 54 people lost their lives in Texas and three more in Oklahoma. 42 people were killed in Wichita Falls alone, roughly half of them people who were attempting to escape from the storm in their cars. The tornado caused $400 million in damage, which is about $1.74 billion today. It is the sixth most costly tornado in American history, and the signs of the tornado's passing could be seen for years and years afterwards. The 1987 Saragossa Tornado In 1987, another powerful tornado hit a much smaller town deep in West Texas, north of the Big Bend, which, while it didn't take as many lives, caused comparative destruction on a scale greater than any since the Panhandle outbreak 40 years before. On May 22, 1987, the small town of Saragossa in Reeves County would have its heart figuratively and literally ripped out by a killer tornado. The storm responsible for the Saragossa tornado developed in the late afternoon of May 22, just north of Balmeray, and at first it had very little motion, moving only slightly for several hours. By the early evening, it morphed into a more powerful thunderstorm with cloud tops reaching 60,000 feet high. A tornado warning was issued for Reeves County before 8 p.m. after a wall cloud was spotted, and a brief tornado did touch down near, near Balmeray at about 8.10 p.m. Six minutes later, another tornado touched down just two miles east of Saragossa, a town north of Interstate 10, about 10 miles north of, Al about 10 miles north of Balmeray. 
Initially, it destroyed farms and outbuildings before evolving into a large multiple vortex tornado, and it intensified sharply into a violent F4 tornado. This tornado slammed into the small town, nearly obliterating it. The path of the tornado was nearly three miles long and about 800 yards wide. The greatest tragedy occurred at the Catholic Hall of Our Lady of Guadalupe Church, where a graduation ceremony for preschoolers was taking place. Twenty-two people in the church, including many children, were killed, and many others were injured. Eight were killed elsewhere across the town, including one inside a car. Eighty percent of the town was destroyed. Trees were debarked, and homes were reduced to their foundations. In addition to Catholic Hall, 118 homes, the post office, a grocery store, two churches, and the school were also heavily damaged or destroyed. Damage was estimated at around $1.4 million, but it was the scale of destruction that was shocking. Out of a total population of 400 people in the area, 30 were killed and 120 were injured, a casualty rate of 37%. The sad irony of the storm is that the tornado itself was very accurately predicted to turn deadly, and there was a heavy warning provided throughout the area. However, most of the residents didn't have adequate warning. The town was not equipped with the siren, did not have its own police or firefighters, and as many of the and as many as half of the residents did not own their own TV or radio. Those who did generally preferred Mexican radio stations from south of the Rio Grande, which did not provide weather alerts for Texas. The town's first awareness came when a parent arriving late to the graduation spotted the tornado bearing down from the west and interrupted the ceremony to give a warning in Spanish. They immediately took cover in the only concrete building in town, which was the one they were in, but it was not built to withstand an F4 tornado. Many in the town actually consider the fact that only 22 out of over 100 people in the church hall was actually something of a miracle. If the town's children had been at home in their small houses and shacks and trailers, almost all of which were destroyed, the death, pole, the death toll could possibly have been way higher. The incredible images of the destruction of this tiny town made national headlines, and aid poured in from all over the country. In the years since this tornado, the church and community center were rebuilt with steel-reinforced masonry construction designed to survive an F4 tornado, and a storm shelter was installed under one wing of the new community center. The town also increased its public safety features to include a siren and public broadcast of warnings. Sadly, many families, most of them poor migrant workers, chose not to rebuild and relocated to other towns in the area. It was the deadliest storm in Texas of the 1980s, but in the 1990s and 2000s, other storms would come that would equal and, in some ways, surpass this deadly tornado. More craziness. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's definitely one universal thing of tornadoes is just the massive, massive destruction that you see. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's really heartbreaking to see what these storms leave in their wake. Well, I'm going to have a connection with each of these tornadoes. Uh, I'll start with the, the Saragossa one, actually. It's the le least connection. Um, we went on a trip down to Fort Davis, uh, which is north of Big Bend, uh, when I was in high school. And uh, this was probably 1990 or so. And we drove through Saragossa because my dad wanted to see. He heard the school was being uh, rebuilt. Uh, and there was still destruction everywhere, even three years later. So, uh, you know, and I just remember watching the news and seeing the pictures, and it looked like looked like a war zone. I mean, the the it looked like a, a bomb had destroyed the whole town. Um, 
So I'm going to go back now to Lubbock. And in 1970, my dad was going to Texas Tech University. He was a, uh, I think it was his second year uh, in in college. Uh, he said he left the day before to go back home to go work with his dad in the oil fields. Uh, he had driven home the day before. Um, and he said that he had a friend uh, who lived in an apartment who had a two-by-four uh, that came through the window or the, maybe even the wall of the apartment, and it knocked his eye out. It, it hit him in his face, and it destroyed his eye, one of his eyes. Uh, and he said he had you – know, he said that was pretty shocking. He had several friends. He had a couple of friends that, that were uh, injured. Uh, some other people that he knew had their houses destroyed. And he said when he came back later on in the year, he said there was still just – it was just terrible. There was just destruction and devastation still even you know three months later when he came back from the summer. So I, I and I think it's actually very fortunate though that uh, the classes had let, already let out, so a lot of kids had gone home, a lot of students had gone home, and when you look at this compared to the Waco, uh, uh, to the Waco tornado, the Waco tornado happened in the middle of the afternoon and it hit a downtown area, so people were there, they were doing business, they were working. Um, this happened late at, later in the evening at, after 10 p.m. Um, and uh, 9:45, 10 p.m. So. There weren't any kids in the schools. There weren't any kids in, on the campus. There weren't, wasn't really anybody down in the downtown in the business district. So working. So I think that had a big part in, in reducing uh, the, the, the deadliness of this particular storm as well. And then my last connection is to the Wichita Falls tornado. So we lived in North Texas. Uh, we moved from West Texas up to Wichita Falls area in 1979 in the summer. Uh, and, uh, I remember I was about five, six years old and we went to the mall, uh, and I remember the roof being gone and they had this big sidewalk sale of all this clothing and stuff that had been lifted out of the mall and deposited on the sidewalk, on the parking lot. And so they were just kind of, they just kind of had piles of clothes and it was just a rummage sale and you could go and buy clothing and stuff from, from these piles of, of of uh, rain-soaked uh, uh, clothing that had been kind of bulldozed into these big piles, mm. uh, and I and I can still remember going visiting friends that lived in Wichita Falls and walking to a park and seeing a, a foundation of a house, and my friend said, "Oh yeah, that house was destroyed by the tornado." Um, so you know th that was that was still very present in the Wichita Falls area. You know, we lived there from 1979 until 19. Uh, 87 88 and there was still you know people still remembered the storm uh, and i and you know it was every year on the anniversary they'd show the pictures and the video of the damage and of the storm itself and that's it's the most terrifying looking storm uh, you'll ever see yeah i yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah insane yeah yeah, you know, we lived where we lived, you know, like we lived in McGargle for a couple of years and they had the neighbors had a storm shelter. And then in Harold, which was closer to Wichita Falls, is actually between Wichita Falls and Vernon. I asked people who live there what happened during the storm. And they said, well, the tornado went north of us. That that one tornado that hit Vernon that went 64 miles through farmland, it was farmland north of Harold. So it, it had traveled up a little ways along 287. Then it kept kept going off of the highway. But uh, there was a there was a very large tornado shelter uh, right across the street from the school. It was for the pretty much the whole town. And several nights we went over there. And then one day, 
the we had a tornado warning and all of the elementary school was sent over there and the high school and junior high was sent over into the the gym about the elementary kids and we were still i was in fifth grade we were sent over in, into uh, across the street to the to the storm shelter that was right next to the school mcgargle uh, mcgargle and harold mcgargle and harold that should be that could be like a crime like tv show from the 80s <laughs> yeah well it was it was something you definitely have the bulk of our combined tornado related um history cuz uh, like i said growing up on the coast um hurricanes were kind of our thing i guess um the only time we heard about tornadoes in our area was in relation to hurricanes so mm-hmm. Well, I would say, yeah, the same thing. Like hurricanes loomed a lot bigger than tornadoes for most of my life. We've had I've had a couple brushes with them, but never anything this close and this big. Um, we covered, but we've done a bunch of episodes on hurricanes, yeah. and then of course right. Scott's from Texas City, which blows up every you know, hey, sixteen years. years. Every couple of years, no. there's <laughs> no. an explosion in Texas City. Now, my wife is from from Orange, which is on the coast, so she's. She is not was not used to growing up with tornadoes. So anytime there's like any Pete Delkis comes on and says the word tornado, we're we're like the kids and the dog and my wife are in the downstairs bathroom with all the cushions off of the couch. Uh, she's gonna kill me when she hears this. Uh, all the cushions off the couch. She's got her phone on, listening listening to Delkis just in case we lose signal on the on the TV. Uh, you know, listening and and uh, and I'm like. I'm gonna go outside and look, because if I don't see, if it's not still, I'm not worried. If it's raining and it's thundering, I'm okay. And so I go outside and look, and if it's green, then I get a little worried and I kind of walk back into the house. If it's if it's dark and it's still, I get a little worried. But but for the most part, I'm more concerned about hail. Whereas to me, hurricanes freak me out. And she's like, oh, we just get just pack up your stuff, come, Lynn, go, go up wherever your family lives in in the Dallas area, and you're okay. And so it's it's the flip of, it's the reverse for for my you know my little dynamic. But to me, tornadoes like, hey, what are you gonna do? You know, <laughs> it's you're either gonna hear it and see it, or you're not. Oh, Sean, living the dream. Yeah. Yep, one tornado at a time. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or get yourself to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. And why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with uh, two N's. And I'm Scotticus. We love this show, so get out there, tell your friends about what we're doing, and please leave a review on iTunes because that helps us to find listeners just like you. And if you'd like to support the show financially, visit patreon.com slash texaspodcast. We hope you'll join us next time, and remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway. <laughs>